Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic, a groundbreaking U.S. Supreme Court case recently decided, held that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits sex discrimination, applies to employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Here to help us understand this landmark case and explain what it means for the future is Myrick O'Connell attorney Lauren Sparks. Lauren practices in the firm's litigation group. Welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Howard. I'm excited to be here. Great. Happy to have you. Can you tell us what the underlying case was about? This case involves three different cases that were consolidated to address the same issue uh, once they reached the Supreme Court. And one thing I always like to do when looking at a case is identifying who are the actual humans involved in this so that the law isn't so separated from the humans that it is affecting. So in this case, Bostock v. Clayton County, we have one individual who was working in Georgia as a child welfare advocate. He was an excellent advocate under his leadership. The county won numerous national awards for its work. And Mr. Bostock had worked with the county for a decade and began participating in a gay recreational softball league. Uh, Shortly after that, influential members of his community made some disparaging comments about his sexual orientation and participation in the league. Shortly thereafter, he was fired uh, based on conduct unbecoming of a county employee. So um, in that situation, it was very clearly uh, established that he was fired for his sexual orientation. The two other cases, uh, sort of the secondary cases in this opinion, are involving one, Donald Zarda, who worked as a skydiving instructor in New York. After several seasons with the company, no issues with his performance. He mentioned he was gay and days later was fired. And the third case, Amy Stevens worked at a funeral home in uh, Garden City, Michigan. When she got the job, Miss Stevens presented as male, worked there for two years presenting as male, and ultimately she was diagnosed with gender dysphoria, and it was recommended that she begin living as a woman. So in her sixth year with the company, she wrote a letter explaining that she was going to work and live full-time as a woman. She returned home from a vacation, went back to work, and she was fired right then and there and told it's not going to work out. So in these cases, it's important to note that none of these employers are denying that they fired these individuals based on either their sexual orientation or uh, gender identity. So that is clearly established. So each employee brought suit under Title VII, alleging unlawful discrimination on the basis of sex. And from there, uh, they started the court process and and they were off. So, Lauren, how did this case or this trio of cases get to the Supreme Court of the United States? These cases had been pending for uh, several years at the time that they were accepted to be heard by the Supreme Court. And by that time, unfortunately, Mr. Zarda and Ms. Stevens had passed away. But their estates wanted to press forward to get benefits for the estates. Uh, from the employers. So the 11th Circuit 
for example, in Mr. Bostock's case, held that the law did not prohibit employers from firing employees for being gay. So his suit was dismissed. Meanwhile, the Second Circuit concluded that sexual orientation discrimination does violate Title VII. So the Second Circuit did want that case to proceed. And then in the Sixth Circuit, they followed along the lines of the Second Circuit and held that Title VII bars employers from firing employees because of their transgender status. So this is obviously an issue that was ripe for Supreme Court consideration, given that the circuits were completely split on how to approach these issues. So that's how we get to the Supreme Court. And what was the decision of the Supreme Court? It should be no surprise at this point, but Justice Neil Gorsuch, who is uh, kind of the last person you would have expected to come out with this opinion or to author this opinion, in a 6-3 decision held that Title VII does prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, which includes sexual orientation and gender identity. This is one of the shorter Supreme Court decisions that I've read. It was only 33 pages. And for non-lawyers listening, it is very accessible and one of the more readable decisions which is out there. Right. So what was the reasoning? What was the decision by Gorsuch and company? So this comes down to what's called a textualist approach, which is a theory of interpreting law where you look at the law and you ask, what is the ordinary meaning of the legal text? We're not going to look outside of it. We're not going to look to non-textual sources. We are just reading this language and we're interpreting it based on this language. And Gorsuch noted that a necessary consequence of what is very broad language in Title VII chosen 56 years ago by our Congress, prohibited employment discrimination because of sex. And he found that to be very clearly something that extended to sexual orientation and gender identity. Meanwhile, his biggest detractor, Justice Alito, also relied on a textualist approach and said Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination on any five specified grounds, neither sexual orientation nor gender identity appear on that list. So we have these two competing approaches that employ the same legal theory of interpretation, which is pretty interesting. And Gorsuch is notably a conservative justice. So again, it is surprising that he issued this, but it shows that there are opportunities in the law, even with conservative judges sitting on the bench for LGBTQ individuals to advocate for their positions if they can make a textualist argument. Are there limits to this decision? Title VII only applies to workplaces with 15 or more employees. So that right there is a big limitation. About half of our states offer explicit protections against workplace discrimination as to sexual orientation and gender identity. But that leaves 25 states that don't offer that protection. And for some individuals living in those states, their only recourse will be at the federal level under Title VII. But that's only if there are 15 or more employees in their company where they work. So that's a huge uh, limitation, but certainly one that is rooted in the type of case this was and not something that was done out of a political motivation on the part of the court. There's hope, though, 
uh, for individuals living in states that do not have explicit protections, that their state courts will look at this decision and Title VII doesn't offer the explicit protection, but has nonetheless been interpreted to provide such protection. So there's hope that state courts will look to this case and expand their application of the existing non-discrimination laws in handling claims from, let's say, an individual who is gay is fired, but she works at a company of under 15 people in Indiana, one of the states that doesn't offer explicit protection. The hope is that she will be able to file a non-discrimination lawsuit relying on state law and ask the court to construe Indiana law consistent with federal law. So there is hope for that, but it is still a significant limitation on the case. Sure. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about the dissent, because there was a vigorous dissent, which you alluded to previously. There are some good sound bites from Justice Alito about why this case, in his opinion, there would be pernicious applications of this holding moving forward. One thing he really focused on in his dissent was the original drafters. When they drafted Title VII, this was 56 years ago, remember, when they drafted that, they never would have contemplated that it would be construed to protect a transgendered individual, for example. In fact, he said, these exotic understandings of sex discrimination would not have crossed their minds. So from his perspective, this is about the past and the original intent going into drafting the Civil Rights Act. He really applies this notion to uphold these traditional constructions. He was pretty vocal about it. Although the opinion itself is 33 pages, there are 135 pages worth of dissent, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. And just to add, he said that his motivation or concern about the court's interpretation of Title VII is that the majority leaves open questions about access to restrooms and locker rooms. This is something that has been really played up in the media, for example. And Justice Alito sort of takes this interesting approach and says that the majority leaves open that women who have been victimized by sexual assault or abuse might see an unclothed person with the anatomy of a male in a confined and sensitive location, such as a bathroom or a locker room, and that could cause them serious psychological harm. So that was one of the reasons that he dissented, was his concern for women uh, victims of sexual assault. Seems like a, a bit of a stretch, especially coming from him. I would really recommend that if anybody is interested in taking a look at this or learning more about the dissent, reading Justice Alito's dissent. Again, this is one of the more readable Supreme Court decisions I've ever read. And this is an opinion that has engendered strong reactions. And Justice Alito's is one of those. And it really is worth reading. There are a lot of interesting tidbits in there. Even aside from the political nature of this opinion, it really is interesting to read how using the same interpretation theory, using this textual approach, each justice has really taken an opposite position on how it should have come out. So what does all this mean moving forward? What is the impact of this case? 
I think that this case is going to result in a lot of litigation moving forward. To his credit, Justice Alito notes that the majority opinion does open up employers to a lot of difficult questions moving forward. For example, Justice Alito wrote, plaintiffs could now claim that the failure to use their preferred pronouns violates one of the federal laws prohibiting sex discrimination. So there are potentially far-reaching consequences, and this case raises a lot of issues for employers. For example, benefit plans. Employees could use this decision to seek coverage under group health plans for certain procedures that have traditionally been excluded. If an employee previously wanted to undergo gender affirmation surgery, he or she would have had to pay for it out of their own pocket. And that was lawful. Now, they could argue that such exclusions violate Title VII protections. So moving forward, employers with 15 or more employees are really going to have to review their health plans, identify where coverage could be challenged as discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. This decision could also be used in such a way that would impact housing, education, credit, and again, back to healthcare, which is a a major one. So I'm anticipating that there will be a lot more litigation Also, at the state level, in those states that I mentioned before that offer no explicit protection against workplace discrimination, now having recourse at the federal level will give them opportunities, individuals from those states to to demand that they're treated equally. We might also see an interaction between religious exceptions and this law. One of the things that some commentators are raising that the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act could come into play here because this law prohibits the government from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion and has been extended to hiring practices in governmental and also corporate employers. So there are going to be two competing federal statutes at play here. If somebody says my religion does not allow me or prohibits me from hiring a gay man, how is that going to interact with the Title VII protections? And that could be a whole new battle. And in the past, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has almost been treated as a super statue and seems to trump just about everything. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes into play as employers start to fight back. We've been talking with Myra O'Connell, attorney Lauren Sparks. Lauren, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns? You can go to the Myrick O'Connell website and just click on Our People. My information will pop up. Or you can send me an email at lsparks at myrickoconnell.com. If you have any questions about these cases or any other Supreme Court cases or legal questions generally, I am available to talk. Thank you so much, Uh, Lauren. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. On behalf of attorney Lauren Sparks and Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 